This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Uber, Uber, now what have you done? The latest hacking mess that exposed personal data on 57 million customers and drivers around the globe. Let's dig into this. Adam Levin is chairman and founder at CyberScout, former director of the New Jersey Division of Consumer Affairs, joining us on the phone from Scottsdale, Arizona. Also, our own Ellen Hewitt, startups and VC reporter, venture capital reporter at Bloomberg News. She's joining us from San Francisco. Ellen, let's start with you. What do we know about what happened at Uber? Today, Bloomberg had a story, and Uber also put out a press release about this hack, which you know um, exposed personal data from 57 million customers and drivers. And I think more importantly than that was something that Uber then said it had concealed for more than a year. Something that at the time, and they now say that at the time they should have gone to regulators to um, disclose that this hack had happened. And they even went to such lengths to keep it quiet that they paid the two attackers $100,000 to delete the data and keep it quiet. Um, but they decided after a board investigation that came up and, and brought up the fact that they had keep, kept this quiet, then they asked for the resignation of their chief security officer and one of his deputies um, for trying to basically handle this in a, in a way that they now say was, was inappropriate. Adam Levin, if you were at a company where something like this happened, what do you believe would be the result? Well, you got to come clean. If you don't come clean, there could be firings. There could be a, a, a serious diminution of shareholder value, uh, loss of trust by your customers, your partners, your employees. Uh, this is not what you do. As a company, when you have an incident and you know it's an incident and you know it's serious, and you know that you've exposed the data of 57 million people, you don't pay someone off to make it go away. Well, that's what I wanted to, to ask respond. you. Do you pay, do you pay $100,000 with supposedly the chief financial officer not knowing that that is what your company has done? You shouldn't even pay it if the chief financial officer does know what your company has done. It's, it's not what you do. You, reserve, you respond urgently, transparently, and empathetically, and you come clean. And my heavens, you sure as heck don't do it when you're in the middle of an FTC investigation about a, privacy, a, pri a prior privacy issue. Well, okay, so that's exactly where I want to go. <laughs> Ellen, let me, let me toss it over to you. I mean, is this a point of, oh, yeah, oops, we did that. Sorry, really <laughs> sorry, because it's a year later, right? And they're not in the midst of those negotiations with the FTC. It certainly seems like it is very convenient timing to drop this news the week of Thanksgiving after, you know, many, many months after the company is no longer in, you know, I mean, they're in other legal trouble at the time. But yeah, as you pointed out, at the time that they first learned about this hack, which was in October of 2016, they were in the middle of negotiations with regulators over other privacy violations that, that they had been, you know, dealing with. And so to know that 
at that moment of time, Uber was, you know, trying to convince regulators, like, hey, we're going to be really careful with our data. And then we're told, like, oops, like, you, yeah. you know, you allowed these hackers to get access to personal information about your drivers and riders and then to basically pay them off to keep it quiet. Uh, it really is not a good look. And I think, um, you know, the, niece, the new CEO, Dara Khosrowshahi, oh, sorry, I messed that up. That's a um, but yeah, he, uh, yeah. Um, you know, he came out and said, you know, none of this should have happened. You know, we don't, we don't try to excuse it. I'm just trying to go forward. Did he not know about people- it? Did he not know about it when he took over? That is a great question. I don't know. Um, actually, you know, in our story, um, in our story yesterday and today, we talked about how even the chief legal officer, Sally Yu, apparently did not know about this, but chief security officer, Joe Sullivan, who has now resigned, as well as, um, you know, his deputies um, were apparently aware. I mean, I don't know whether the new CEO knew. It definitely is just one of the many things, many headaches that he has inherited from Travis Kalanick, um, and, and I think it has to deal with, and I'm sure he expected to deal with stuff like this, but maybe not something quite this dramatic. Adam, how uh, critical is uh, this network that Uber has in order to maintain its valuation? Because without its network, what does Uber have? It doesn't have employees by its own admission. It doesn't own its own automobiles by its own admission. What is left of the company if they can't get the technology right? Well, you know, they have technology. The issue is that it was uh, it was a situation where privileged access was gained because someone got into another site and found the information in a site that normally keeps this kind of information which was a coding site but but the issue is you don't have more than your word your trust and maybe proprietary technology but when you have shaken to the core your riders trust your consumers trust perhaps now the uh, stakeholders trust Certainly regulators in 52 jurisdictions are now going to take a hard look at these folks because there are 52 separate breach notification laws in the U.S., and I guarantee you none of them would accept the concept of not mentioning this for a year and, oh, by the way, paying off the hackers. Um, Ellen is hmm, Kalanick. Travis Kalanick, right? He was the one in control as CEO a year ago. He's still on the company's board. Is it time for him to go that maybe he just has too much influence still at the company? That is a really tough question. He is, you're right, he's still on the board. He definitely still um, is a powerful presence within the company. I think it seems like the new CEO has been putting a lot of effort into reshaping the tone of stuff that's coming out of the company. You know, you hear a lot more of like, we're doing business differently. We're really going to take this seriously. It, it is definitely a different public tone. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I think this is a question that people are going to ask is like, you know, should he still be on the board? I mean, it's complicated. There were definitely a lot of negotiations around whether he would get the two boards he currently controls right. and, you know, Com- we'll see. Complicated and not over, that's for sure. Ellen Hewitt, thank you. Startups and VC reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in San Francisco. On the phone in Scottsdale, Arizona, Adam Levin, chairman and founder of CyberScout. She's a beauty. 
Birchbox is the subscription beauty product service selling around the globe. It's a way to try out sample size products that can be customized. And it shipped its first Birchbox back in September of 2010. And in this retail environment where Amazon increasingly has a bigger and bigger presence, Katja Beecham is co-founder and CEO at Birchbox. She has some thoughts about that and on how retailers can and should compete with Amazon. She joins us on the phone in New York City. Katja, nice to have you here uh, with Pim Fox and myself on Bloomberg Radio. Tell us a little bit. Let's jump right in because I feel like every retailer out there, bricks and mortars or uh, online, have to think about what it means to compete against Amazon. Yeah, I think it's a really important question, and I think it's one that we're all thinking about. And I actually think that the consideration of it extends beyond companies. I think consumers have to be thinking about this too. Because how, how do you guys actually, do it? How do you guys do it? Because you're, you know, um, an interesting product, but it, you know, I'm just curious how you kind of keep yourself and your customers engaged. So what we think about is the definition of delight to a consumer. And obviously, it's a very subjective view of the world. But one thing that we believe is that delight is something very specific when it comes to discretionary spending of money. So when you're spending money on something you don't have to, you have a really high expectation for being delighted. And I think one thing that we can mostly agree on is that the way Amazon to date has defined delight is really about functional efficacy. It's really about um, efficiency, about delivering you something at the right price and delivering it quickly. And absolutely, that is one element of delight. But I actually think that that element of delight is much more tied to the experience of taking the pain out of getting your chores done. And I don't think it speaks to how you delight people when they're spending money with discretion. So what we focus on is bringing the delight to shopping for beauty, which is clearly a purely discretionary discretionary activity. Mm -hmm. And it's an activity that we also recognize that most women do not love, which is counterintuitive. But for most women, the beauty category has become increasingly complicated. There's so much product. There's a lot of BS. And the idea of somebody cutting through the clutter, doing the work for you, and making the process of discovery something that you can enjoy is, I still believe, groundbreaking. Um, And it's still very much seeing, I mean, so much excitement and traction from customers. Katja, just tell us a little bit about the money. I understand, uh, I guess it was in 2016, you had a $15 million bridge round. Add to that the uh, 2014 $60 million round. The valuation was about a half a billion dollars. Can you bring us up to date on some of the metrics that you watch in the uh, the company? What, how many box subscribers, a million, four million total customers? Can you give us an update? Yeah, so um, the big focus for us in 2016, as we talked about in that bridge financing story, is becoming profitable. We became profitable way ahead of expectations as of the beginning of this year and continue to be profitable in all markets. So that's the number one thing while continuing to accelerate the growth of our subscriber base and the growth of our customer base. Um, So everything is now really, it's about being in our control and not needing external financing, which is the goal of the company. and, And we're very proud to be on that side. Katja, it's interesting though, if, you know, go back to, we we started talking about Amazon, you know, here they are, huge online presence, right? And now they are opening brick and mortar stores. You guys have done the same thing. Did you need to do that to kind of move the needle on growth? 
Um, not not yet. I mean, having a couple stores certainly doesn't move the needle on growth, but we do think it's a critical aspect of building lifelong and loyal relationships with customers. So it absolutely should impact the cost of acquisition, the cost of retention, which are KPIs or key performance indicators that we really do obsess over. But with two stores, it's certainly not something that we expect to see right away. It's something that comes with um, a little bit more of a strategy there. I, I do think that continuing to meet your customers in person is going to be something we see all e-commerce players um, looking at. It's an element, it's a way to bring to life um, the product offering, the brand to customers, and you can amortize that on the internet. So the expectation shouldn't be, and it isn't for those of us who are there, that now we have a store, so the customer is moving their transaction to the store. The expectation is right. that it helps grow our relationship overall, and actually that a lot of that benefit will happen online. And I think that's the same bet Amazon's making. It is definitely a marketing activity, um, but I'd like to see it as, I mean, what I yeah. hope it is, which is customers, I mean, which is companies trying to get closer to their customer in order to serve them better. I have to ask you, too, having having received um, Birchbox as a gift, and it's really a, a neat, novel idea, but I am always curious. Cosmetics. I mean, basically, it's uh, cosmetics, skincare. Ki- yeah. And, and they're small sizes, so you get to try them. And, and you know, I guess the hope, you know, certainly the hope is that you ultimately buy, you know, the full size product um, Are they from samples? Birchbox. Yeah, they are sample size. And, and I really enjoyed it. But I'm always curious. I didn't ultimately go on to buy any full size products. How many of your customers who actually get get a Birchbox do ultimately reorder from you guys and are ordering like a full size or become a longer lasting customer? And just got about Absolutely, 40 yeah. seconds. Yeah. Yeah, it's about 50% of our customer of our subscribers that go on to be customers. And it's also a very meaningful percentage of our business that is just people who just shop Birchbox full-size alone yeah. and are not subscribers, some of which who are past subscribers and some of which who have never subscribed. So it's meaningful, but to your point, it's the entire thing that we're working towards. We want to be the destination place that the average customer buys beauty. And we it isn't just about the discovery. It's about the full um, the full experience from first touch through to the purchase. And a big, you know, headwind that we face is that over 90% of beauty is still purchased in brick and mortar stores. So right. our box is like bringing a little boutique to you. And of course, it's on us to get you to see that as a way to then translate. Right. And an amped up market when you look at, you know, stores like Sephora who are in the space and where people get to go in and play around with the product. Um, fascinating. Katja, thank you so much for some time today. Katja Beecham, co-founder, chief executive officer at Birchbox, joining us on the phone in New York City. A tax trap, well, maybe a future tax trap. Here to tell us about it is Lindley Browning, our Bloomberg News tax reporter. And Lindley, you know, the the Senate is scheduled to vote, what, by the end of the month on uh, the tax bill that would cut the corporate tax rate in 2019 to 20% from 35 and also move the U.S. towards what's described as a territorial system for corporate taxes. But, and there's always a but when it comes to taxes, apparently there are future tax traps for unsuspecting multinationals. Tell us about these tax traps. And I thought they were going to make this a lot less complicated, but apparently it is a 515-page tax bill. Tax reform is never uncomplicated. In fact, it probably causes brain damage in most people (laughs) who try to read through the legislative language of the tax bill. 
The idea with these quote-unquote tax traps is that rates on three new taxes proposed by the Senate Finance Committee would spike in the last years of the bill. And the Senate has uh, structured the bill this way for a very specific reason. It needs to raise money so as to meet Senate requirements, uh, known as the Bird Rule, governing what can be passed within a 10-year budget window. So is this to offset or maybe to include a provision if the Obamacare mandate provision isn't part of the final legislation? Basically, the Senate bill is has set itself revenue targets that it says must be met in order for these rate spikes on these three new taxes on multinationals not to take place. So far, everybody is pretty much thinking it's pretty much baked in, but who knows? All right. If that's already baked in, then does anybody really believe they know what the economy is going to do in 2024? I mean, doesn't this all just turn out to be some bizarre you know, accounting gimmick in order to satisfy some kind of rules that, no, I mean, the people that are going to write this bill, they might not even be here in 2024. It's definitely uh, budgeting and accounting. I'm not sure I would use the word gimmick or trickery. Okay, but if you were a private company and you use this kind of accounting to organize your business, how long do you think you'd be in business? You would have a big problem because companies, especially those that do long-tail planning investment, need certainty. I mean, they're planning stuff many, many years down the road. And if there's a situation which, well, maybe a tax will increase and it already impacts us significantly, but we don't know if it will and we won't really find out until the night before, functionally, that's a problem. But but again, to, to Pim's point, um, Lindley, is this about, you know, creating a bill that's not going to increase the long-term federal deficit, which is a standard that allows them to fast-track their tax legislation over Democrat objections that would otherwise stymie their bill? So is it just a case of, we put this in, we can fast-track it, and who the heck knows what's going to happen, you know, in X amount of years? We'll deal with that later. I think that must be the takeaway and conclusion that any reasonable person would have to draw from this 515-page bill. I mean, this stuff is being done at an unusually brisk pace. It's like trying to gestate an elephant, you know, in (laughs) like three weeks. It's a lot to absorb. It's dangerous and could lead to, I feel like, some really... um, Stampede. That's what happens with those elephants. (laughs) 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 We can take that metaphor as far as we want. I I, I think I'm going to just let... All kinds of mutant-like or unexpected outcomes. What's on the last page of the tax bill? Oh, the very last page of this 515 bill buries a very crucial piece of information that certain revenue targets will have to be met in order for, at least in the case of these three new taxes on multinationals, not to spike up in years 8, 9, and 10. What does that mean? I don't understand this. So they stick What this- that means is that if the final tax bill that that the Senate agrees with the House and the whole Congress votes on and goes into action does not include, say, a repeal of the individual mandate or does not include some other big measure that raises a lot of money, the bill is going to fall short of those revenue targets and those, those tax rates on multinationals are going to spike up. 
I guess what I was meaning when I said, you know, what is what does it mean is why would they put this on the last page of a 515 (laughs) page proposal when their whole thing is we want things to be simpler, more straightforward at postcards. They look pretty tired. I don't know. I think you definitely have to have a high threshold of pain tolerance when reading through any legislative language, but in particular, this tax bill within the time, the very, very compressed time work framework in which we're all digesting it. Lindley, I just got 30 seconds here. Any of this getting simpler, better, smarter? (laughs) Oh, my Um, God, that was I I think that just gave it away. (laughs) Quick takeaway, smarter, yes, we are generally moving towards a quote-unquote territorial system that taxes companies on their domestic profits only. Okay. Right now, we're the only, so yes. So, yes. Uh, I love the laugh. Classic. Perfect. Uh, Lindley, have a good Thanksgiving. Lindley Browning, tax reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Fairfield, Connecticut. I feel like that was about as honest as you can get. I'm thinking taxes and comedy. Why not? (laughs) Nothing funny about paying taxes, that's for sure. Hello, world, is a song that we're singing. Ah, I gotta tell you, that takes me back. I remember Friday Night TV, it would be the Brady Bunch and the Partridge family. And I gotta say, I kind of had a crush on David Cassidy as a little kid. Even wrote to him, Dave Wilson, our Bloomberg Stocks columnist, because I told him I was going to eat my vegetables, I don't know, to be a good kid or something. I Did don't you know. get a response? <laughs> I don't remember. Did but I did have the something? albums. I don't remember. I think I might have had a poster somewhere in my bedroom. Um More importantly, this leads you to the chart of the day and really uh, David Cassidy, of course, um, the passing of David Cassidy. At the age of 67, indeed. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, though, if you're an investor in semiconductor stocks, you may be getting happy about now, uh, hence the theme. And uh, the chart focuses in on the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index. It's uh, an indicator that peaked back in 2000 and yesterday finally broke that record. Now, how many times have we talked about that in the context of broader market indexes? You know, the uh, the SOX, though, as the index is called, the ticker is SOX. Uh, it's sort of an interesting case for a couple of reasons that are highlighted in the chart. One is how long the index actually took to break that record. You have to go back. It was nine years and a day from a low in November 2008 to yesterday's new high. Compare that with what we saw late 1990s, early 2000s, when that uh, internet bubble was peaking. It happened in less than a year and a half. So it's been a much more sustained kind of advance this time around. And another thing that I noted that's especially interesting is NVIDIA has really led the way up over uh, the last nine years, soaring more than 36-fold. NVIDIA wasn't even a publicly traded company when the previous rally began in October 1998. Now, you know, they had good timing. They went public in 1999, and their shares really took off. But it shows you how things have changed. This is not an industry that is dependent in the same way on sort of the older line companies. Intel hasn't been a leader. Neither has Qualcomm. And now Qualcomm uh, in the sights of Broadcom is a possible takeover target. And Broadcom has also been a top performer 
during the past nine years, especially since uh, Avago Technologies and Broadcom uh, got together to create the company that we now know as Broadcom. Anyway, uh, if you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it. And everything I do going forward, the email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. Dave, I was just going to say that, you know, if you look at the actual constituents of the SOX index, NVIDIA is the third largest uh, holding. And this is a what they call a modified cap-weighted right. uh, index. Uh, and I thought that was useful because it has changed from a price-weighted index that goes back to 2009. So you just have to be aware of Right, so the biggest oranges, companies oranges count for yeah, more, right. but they don't want any one company to sort of get out of line with the rest. I mean, the modification is fairly common in these narrower sort of industry gauges. Right, and uh, year-to-date, the uh, Philadelphia Stock Exchange uh, Semiconductor Index, as you noted, up more than 46%. It's been quite the move. Yeah. Not too shabby, right? Hey, speaking of moves... Um, Recording artists uh, being led by a well-known uh, manager, Irving Azoff, really a super manager. Uh, he represents Fleetwood Mac, the Eagles, Christina Aguilera, a lot of folks. Anyway, they're trying to get more money for recording artists when their songs are played on radio, Dave. And uh, we know you follow this. It's an interesting story that's in uh, Bloomberg Business Week this re uh, week, written by Lucas Shaw, reporter Lucas Shaw. Um, but it's interesting, right? We've heard about recording artists getting more money from a lot of the streaming services because we see a lot of people going there to listen to music. But radio is still very, very important, kind of your biggest audience when it comes to uh Recording artists. Uh, absolutely. I mean, because you're talking about billions of dollars that get paid out. And in terms of what the uh, songwriters get paid, and that's the key here, uh, it, it's a relatively small percent, something like 4%. And it's been that way for some time. And so you've got people like New Jersey's own John Bon Jovi at the forefront of the, uh, the charge here, uh, led by Irving Azoff, uh, to try and increase that number, move it up to something like 20%. At least it's a big that's one of stories. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's interesting to have it come at, at a time like this because. Because, you know, if you think about what's going on in the radio business, I mean, there are a lot of companies that are hurting because, you know, they've had debt piled on them as a result of deals. You know, iHeartMedia, Cumulus Media, other companies like that. I mean, you have to wonder if this isn't sort of like squeezing blood from the proverbial stone. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in court mm -hmm. and, you know, how hard the companies really fight to kind of keep things the way they are. Some 250 million people listen to radio every month with stations generating about $18 billion in radio advertising every year. And that's across news, talk, sports and music. So. Right. Not too shabby, right? Four percent uh, is uh, the going tariff right, right. now. That's the uh, the royalty payment. Four percent of their of the music related advertising revenue goes to uh, songwriters. Check out more on this story, Bloomberg Business Week on newsstands, and also you can catch uh, Bloomberg Business Week on radio and TV this weekend. Dave Wilson, thank you so much. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
All right, let's drive to the close with Ryan Dietrich, Senior Market Strategist at LPL Financial. Ryan, always a pleasure to learn what you're looking at. Tell us about the the actual charts and what they're telling you, because I'm looking at an extended move in the S&P 500, at least uh, if you're taking a look at 50, 100, and, uh, well, 900, I was going to say 50, 91, and 200-day moving averages. Hey, Pim. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you. So you're right. I mean, obviously, we haven't had a 3% correction on the S&P 500 for over a year, the longest streak ever. So clearly, this move is a little, you could say, long in the tooth. And historically, this year is the least volatile year we've seen since the mid-90s and before that, the mid-60s. So could it be time for maybe a modest correction of 3 to 5%? It absolutely could be. But again, the underlying pinnings of the overall business cycle, whether you look at you know uh, earnings, you look at some of the overall economic news, things are really still positive in our view, Pim, as we head out to 2018, but always near term, there's always some, some potential cracks under the surface, but still bigger picture, it really looks good to us. Ryan, how reliable have charts been in this era of very easy money uh, among the global central banks? Well, I mean, that's a great question, Carol. Obviously, charts, they can be right sometimes, they can be wrong sometimes. But what, what continues to kind of really drive us, like you said, we've had clearly monetary policy. But, you know, next week at LPL Research, we're releasing our outlook for next year, Carol, and the, the title is Return to the Business Cycle. What we're looking at next year, we really think, you know, we're going to finally move into a period of more fiscal policy taking over, including improving business fundamentals, so kind of getting back to good old-fashioned earnings and valuations and things that really will matter more as we kind of move out of the world of all the Fed printing money and then, you know, all of the, the things that we've driven us for so long. We think that could be a positive thing as you can get some more, you know, better chances for just average investors to get in there and dig in and get some get some right calls because everything's been so uh, trending the same way. And now we can get more dispersion. And that can be a big positive, we think, in the 2018, Carol. So does this mean what, that we're moving away from a world that's governed by a credit cycle and more into a world that's governed by a business cycle? We think so, Pam. I mean, that's a great way to put it. You know, I mean, clearly with the fiscal side of things, you've got tax reform, infrastructure spending, and then just regulation. And those three things are things we obviously haven't really seen for the past eight years. So they're new, potentially. Also, just good old-fashioned business investment. We think, you know, companies are finally investing in themselves again, and those are just major positives. So it's been a, it's been a, obviously a great ride when you look at what happened in the U.S., but honestly, look at emerging markets. They've had a great year this year, but for the four, four years before that, they really didn't do so well. So we think, again, it's as bigger picture. It's an overall global um, expansion in earnings. And this is the first year we've seen this really since the financial crisis where positive earnings across the board. Ryan, so take me back because you do follow charts and stuff. Are we seeing any interesting kind of turning points among some of the trend lines that we've seen among asset classes? Pick your asset Mm -hmm. class, if you will. Sure. Well, Carol, you know, look at small caps. I mean, small caps are an area that we like. First off, the overall chart still looks strong from a purely technical point of view. But small caps, clearly, they, they kind of lag. They had a big, they've had fits and starts. But we think, you know, as you talk about fundamentals specifically, you know, the, the, the fact that this tax reform is so beneficial for, for small caps in general. And yes, the economic cycle's old. It's eight years old. We know that one of the longest economic cycles of growth ever. But really, we think it's just starting to pick up again. You know, we're looking at maybe three straight quarters of GDP growth for the first time in, in in over a decade. So, you know, there's positives and small caps really could continue to uh, to lead us next year, which is surprising this late in the cycle, but we think it's likely. Small caps. All right. So what uh, are you using just the Russell 2000 and tell us about what indicators you use to check on value. 
Sure. Well, yeah, we do like to just the Russell 2000, keep them from there. But you mentioned the words value. You know, value growth. <clears throat> you know, I've come on to you for, for a while saying we like technology. Technology's had great earnings, which justify the move. So growth has done well. But value in general, you know, when you look at some of the spreads of growth of value, value to us is a nice play in the next year as potentially we finally get the tick higher in rates, which clearly should help financials, which is the biggest part of value. So really, small cap value in particular is kind of one of our, I say, you know, one of our favorite plays in the 2018 that potentially give uh, someone's portfolio a little bit of extra alpha. Anywhere you don't want to be based on what you're seeing among the technicals and the charts? Sure. Well, more the more defensive names, you know, consumer staples, utilities, some of those areas, uh, which on a relative basis done okay because we're in a global bull market. Nonetheless, we still think you want to be a little more aggressive with those cyclical names, you know, finance, the financials, the technical, I'm sorry, the, the, the technology, financials, and industrial still look really good to us to be a little bit more aggressive. And bonds, we'd be a little underweight bonds here. Again, we, we, you know, we're looking for higher rates, like just about everyone you probably talk to. We're all looking for a little bit higher rates. So maybe, you know, bonds are a great diversifier. We're not saying avoid them. But definitely bonds are not probably a place to be overweight as we head into next year. Ryan, when you put together your charts, do you use a logarithmic scale or do you use just a simple arithmetic scale? And the reason I ask is because when you have markets at these elevations, uh, you're talking about moving trillions of dollars in a way that you didn't do before. Exactly, Tom. Yeah, when you look at long-term charts, I think it makes a lot of sense for most people to look at log because it does show more of a true picture as to what's going on there. But you talk about, you know, with charts and technicals, one of the very simple things we like to look at is the NYC advanced decline line. Keeping it simple, it's how many stocks are going up versus how many stocks are going down. It flashed major warning signs at the tech bubble and before the financial crisis because we didn't have participation and the NYSC advanced decline line was trending lower. It's supporting the idea of weakness under the surface. Well, right now, Pim, there's new highs happening in the NYSE advanced decline line. So we're seeing no major weak signs of a major peak. Right. All the talk this week. We're also about seeing a lot of breath, right? Peak. We're so, also exactly. seeing a lot of breath around the market. It's not just in a few isolated sectors. We real, really yeah. are seeing it kind of spread across a, a, a lot of groups. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Ryan, mm-hmm. we got to run. Have a good Thanksgiving. Ryan Dietrich, senior market strategist at LPL Financial, on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Here we go, everybody, on Thanksgiving Eve. Let's go to some of the movers and shakers in the trading session here, starting off with the S&P 500. 200 names higher, 301 lower, five unchanged. I want to talk a little bit about iRobot, though. Uh, That stock was down 6.2% to $68.56 a share, still up about 17% in 2017. iRobot, though, dropping. Um, The company running a $100 off special this week on four of the Roomba models, Versus the same promotion last year on just two models. This is coming out from a Piper Jaffrey analyst. Uh, 
sent this to us, sent this to Bloomberg News in an email. Jensen, by the way, rates iRobot neutral with a $69 price target, so just a little bit higher from where it closed today. Uh, they downgraded it uh, in late October, citing increasing concerns around competition, adding that Shark Ninja has announced uh, a line of robotic uh, vacuums in the third quarter priced in the range of 300 to $350, which comprises or which competes against the iRobot's lower-end vacuum. So I guess there's a little concern, but nonetheless, iRobot shares down about 6%. Big discount if you want a Roomba pim for your home. Okay. I'm Having gonna... one, the dog always loves the Roombas. Yeah. Well, the, the Roomba didn't rumble today, right? Uh, no. The stock down. Um, and the company, of course, based in Bedford, mm-hmm. Mass, uh, home to Bloomberg 1061, uh, uh, Boston, yes. Newburyport, and 1330 in Metro West and the South Shore. I want to just tell you a little bit about uh, Hewlett Packard uh, M- Enterprise, uh, revenue rising. But Meg Whitman announcing her surprise exit, and as a result, uh, looks as though investors were a little bit, well, concerned. Shares down more than 7% today. Uh, The company has named Antonio Neri to succeed Meg Whitman as the chief executive, and uh, he is an engineer, and it's the first time in almost Mm. two decades that uh, HP Enterprise, anyway, will be run by an engineer. So stock down seven, a little bit more than 7%. Yeah, we were all, right, talking about this, right, as the news came out uh, late yesterday. I also, you know, I kind of missed this yesterday because Hewlett Packard Enterprise reported uh, and a lot of news involving Meg Whitman, but uh, HPQ also uh, came out with their latest results and we saw the stock number two decliner right behind HPE, which was the number one decliner in the S&P 500. HPQ down about 5%, down more than a buck to 21 in change a share still up though tremendous bullish run uh here in 2017 hpq up 44 percent so far this year nonetheless that wasn't the tone today tumbling the most in about a year in today's session signaling skepticism that the world's biggest maker of personal computers can sustain the robust growth rate of the past year so the company came out uh, late yesterday said sales rose for the fifth consecutive quarter but there is lingering investor doubt about the growth potential of its core pc and printer businesses analysts now are predicting stagnant sales in 2018 and 2019 revenue though did climb 11 percent in the three months ending through october but you know people keep talking about the demise of the pc business HPQ has kind of shown us otherwise, but maybe there's some doubt going forward. Let me tell you about the shares of Cerner. Now, Cerner is a healthcare, and uh, this has to do with Amazon. There's a report from the Kansas City Star that Cerner is poised for an Amazon partnership uh, on healthcare. Once again, those are unconfirmed reports, but nevertheless, uh, enough to send the shares of Cerner up more than 5%. And of course, everyone is interested in yeah. whatever Amazon does, whether it be buying Whole Food or indeed uh, going into the health. Uh, and pharmacy business. So nothing, once again, Cerner Corp up more than 5% today. Nothing makes investors sometimes shake in their boots when Amazon Mention Amazon in that second paragraph and you're done. <laughs> exactly. We're not done yet, though, folks. We've got the Volatility Index Report. And the VIX in the Friday session up 1%, closing at 9.83. For the week overall, the VIX up one and a quarter percent This is Bloomberg. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave! Who? Dave! Hey, Mr. Wilson! Well, Bloomberg Stock of the Day is brought to you by Interactive Brokers, offering direct market access to products in more than 100 markets in 24 countries with transparent low commissions, low margin loan rates, and best price execution. Visit ibkr.com slash save more. 
Let's get more from Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks, columnist and blogger at MLiveGo. Dave, tell us what about uh, your stock of the day. Well, it's Collegium Pharmaceutical. This is a company that's in the business of treating chronic pain, and this area has gained national attention. In opioid, right? The whole exactly. opioid crisis issue. You bet. I mean, because a lot of those opioids are prescribed to patients seeking pain relief. Now, Collegium has been publicly traded for two and a half years. The ticker is COLL. The stock has struggled to stay above its initial public offering price of $12 a share, dipped as low as $7.37 this past May. Now, two weeks ago, Collegium surged after gaining U.S. regulatory approval for a pain medication. The drug's called Extamsa ER. Its active ingredient is the opioid oxycodone, the same as Purdue Pharma's biggest seller, OxyContin. Well, it turns out that the two companies are embroiled in a legal dispute over Extamsa ER. Purdue claims that abuse deterrent technology used in Collegium's drug infringes on its patents. And late yesterday, a federal court in Boston sided with Purdue in the case. Now, the ruling sent Collegium shares to their biggest one-day loss since February of last year. They fell more than 12%. And in fact, at their low of the day, they were down almost 19%. Collegium based in Canton, Massachusetts. There you go. See, uh, of course, um, home to Bloomberg 1061, Boston, Newburyport 1330, Metro West and the South Shore. And the other thing about Collegium is that I understand that, uh, set aside the, the legal issue, insurance companies such as Humana have already agreed to accept uh, their drug, uh, Exampta. Exampta, yeah. Right, uh, in place of OxyContin. Yeah, that's the key, what the insurance companies decide. Such a big deal for the drug makers these days. Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Bloomberg Stocks columnist Dave Wilson with his Stock of the Day right here on Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.